I would like to reflect a little bit about fear and um, as uh, by way of introduction I was thinking of uh, listening briefly uh, to Krishnamurti we are boiling with fear all the time That's simple and direct and um, well, sometimes this is not um, this is not evident. I am specifically thinking of a, a Dharma course on fear, uh, fear and practice, a few years ago, and uh, a number of uh, students, um, after some time, um, said, "But I didn't know." that I had so much fear. So we can, uh, we can hide, at, at least partially, uh, fear. On the other hand, um, you know, this, this uh, uh, all-pervasive um, um, quality of fear, it's an important piece of truth uh, that it's very important we become familiar with after some disconcert, maybe. Krishnamurti also says, to find out if there is actually such freedom, one must be aware of one's own conditioning of the problems, and above all, one must be aware of fear. The self-interest in our life is the cause of fear. This sense of me and my concern, my happiness, my success, my failure, my achievement. Where there is self-interest, there must be fear and all the consequences of fear. So in addition to create fear, these statements are a strong invitation to practice with fear. Um, and it's, um, it's, a very, it's a very frequent, very popular um, among, uh, in, 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 Dharma circle, in Dharma circles, um, uh, the question how to practice with fear. It's very popular. But sometimes uh, it... Uh, There's a contradiction there, because we ask how to practice with fear, and we are still afraid of practicing. So we would like to practice with fear, and at the same time, we are afraid of practicing. That, <laughs> once again, shows how pervasive, uh, insidious, and... Um, very close uh, fear is because we don't we are very sincere when we ask how to work with fear and we don't realize that uh, there is fear um, of practicing you know it's fear of uh, of the unknown fear of namely unknown consequences unknown develop developments of practice but also 
you know, very, very, very down-to-earth fears, like fear of missing something What if we practice. You know, missing those, uh, for instance, thinking in terms of uh, um, sitting practice, fear of missing those habitual activities that we would do uh, if we didn't practice. Fear of missing sleep, fear of missing the news, fear of missing uh, whatever it is that we are uh, in the habit of doing. Um, Now, uh, the, um, the crucial area is fear of fear. You know, Ezra Baida, who is a, a, an American Zen teacher, um, says it so beautifully that I can't resist and I, uh, I'm going to read from his book, Being Zen. He, he said at one point, he, he wanted to get rid of fear, and he uh, did uh, a number of uh, spiritual exercises because he wanted to, be, to get rid of fear. Uh, finally, I, he joins uh, another spiritual group in San Francisco, and I was assigned a task I would never have undertaken on my own, to, ma- to make up a song and sing it on, and sing it on Fisherman's Wharf. (laughs) In the summertime, on Fisherman's Wharf, there are hundreds of tourists milling around, waiting to ride on the cable cars. My task was to sing for them. Even now, I can remember standing there, petrified, trembling, thinking I was going to faint or throw up. But I sang the song because I had willpower and because I wanted to get rid of my fear. I didn't want to be afraid. That was my motivation. So I sang my song and I asked for money. Then Then a, a little while later, I did it again. Each time I did this, it became easier. I realized I was beginning to enjoy doing it. I was having fun. What I didn't realize is that I was just replacing one conditioned self with another. I had replaced this fearful self with one who was now confident in this situation. Nor did I see that through this practice, I was not really working with the roots of fear. I was working with, with the content, with the content of fear. So he didn't realize it, and he, he did many other uh, types of this practice. So he said, of course, this wasn't uh, uh, useless, but what happened is that I would get over one specific fear, but I wouldn't get at the roots of fear. One point, um, he says, several months later, I became severely ill. For about eight months, I was dealing with a whole new realm of fear. As the illness progressed, 
with the possibility of there being no cure, my fears began to multiply. First was the fear of discomfort. Then there was the fear of being dependent on other people. Beneath the layers of self-pity and depression, there was the fear of the helplessness of the loss of control. Also, I didn't have the energy or the strength to focus my attention. At this point, I spent most of my time wallowing in fear with little clarity about how to practice with it. Feeling desperate, I decided to call Joko Beck, famous Zen teacher, whom I had met a few months earlier. After listening to my story, she said something like, Ezra, <clears throat> I know that this illness isn't pleasant and that you don't like it, but what, do you, but what you have to see is that it is your path. This one remark somehow turned everything right side up. Perhaps for the first time in my life, I felt willing to allow the fear in to just let it be without pushing it away. No, this is very beautiful. I felt willing to allow the fear in, to just let it be without pushing it away. Oh. So start working with fear and uh, uh, working with the what, what is this uh, way. The what of fear as with all emotions, has two main components, thoughts and, bod and bodily sensations. Just the willingness to stay with the fear, to be curious about the fear, is a big step from pushing it away or trying to overcome it. The problem is not so much these sensations and thoughts, but our resistance to feeling them our resistance to feeling them, resistance to practice, you know, crucial. Our desire to avoid fear is what makes us feel so awful. Fear of fear is what makes us feel so awful. This is the tight fist of fear. We hold on so tightly to avoid feeling the fear that we close off our hearts. And finally, he says, for me, during intense periods of fear, it was a moment-by-moment -moment struggle. One moment I would want to run away, to push away the fear. The next moment I would want to smash through it. But there would also be moments of surrender when I could say yes to it and almost embrace it. Finally, I began to see that fear is not solid and it is nothing more than strong sensations and disabling thoughts based on our conditioning. So he, he's very realistic. He say, one moment I would sweat, sweat away, the next moment I would wake up, and on and on. Generally speaking, um, I think we need a foundation um, 
some familiarity um, with meditation practice. Foundation means some stability, um, some energy, uh, some trust. You know, it's a subtle energy. I'm not, I'm not thinking of uh, uh, the kind of vigorous energy we always dream of. Um, <laughs> like coming back incessantly and more and more equanimously to the breath builds up a subtle energy. And we don't even, we don't even realize it. Um, and uh, from that energy... Uh, 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 Trust grows, you know, uh, slowly uh, trust grows. And uh, trust is the antidote uh, by choice of fear. So the, the foundation of practice is crucial. So as, I, as I say, some stability, some subtle energy, uh, specific um, meditative energy um, and uh, some trust. Also, another important element, which is, seems to be obvious, but I've seen uh, time and again that uh, it is easily overlooked, is using very small fears as a training ground. Um, I don't know. Maybe, uh, you know, Ignorance as many facets, as many aspects. So to make ourselves oblivious to obvious things is another aspect of avidya, is another aspect of, of uh, uh, ignorance. It, you know, small fears are more uh, easy to deal with than medium fears, than big fears. So it's an excellent uh, ground uh, for training. We can, we can see the way fear works uh, the, way, the way we uh, empower a fear. And this way, we are equipped to deal with bigger fears. Otherwise, it's, it's hopeless. We, we, we go, uh, we, we want to work with fear, and um, we are not equipped. And the only thing which happens is that uh, fear overwhelms us, and the fear of fear increases. Not such a good result. So it takes some discernment, some, some skillfulness, uh, you know, experimenting with uh, small fears, experimenting, um, and, uh, you know, uh, being able uh, um, of strategic withdrawal uh, when fear is too strong, when we don't feel we are equipped to, to deal with it, and practice in uh, breath, metta, and uh, forget about uh, uh, facing fears. Then a moment comes when it is more realistic, more possible, and we shouldn't miss that moment. Or we should learn not to miss it. It's part of the training. It's part of the uh, fact of the practice, part of the insight huh? in uh, you know, understanding uh, the way, the best way for us to practice, the best way for us to deal with fear, with our fears. As uh, Larry was talking about self-knowing, this is another aspect of self-knowing, a crucial aspect of self-knowing.
you know, to to get more more at ease with fear. We mentioned last night fearlessness, abaya. It's first and foremost to get more at ease. And then the possibility to understand, to have a better understanding of fear um, increases. Because we are usually, you know, avidya, ignorance, the root, the root cause of suffering manifests as being very confused. We can be very functional and uh, effective and uh, bright and all that, and we'll be very confused. And fear is a big part of confusion. But we prefer to, deal with, to, to say we are confused than, rather than say I'm f- full of fear. Uh, Krishnamurti said we are boiling with fear all the time. Oh, he's uh, an exaggeration. <laughs> it's not true. We kind of sort of boiling all the time with fear. <laughs> you know, fear of fear is at work. <clears throat> Fear has to do with our sensitivity. It's an expression of our sensitivity. As all the emotions. So something should uh, melt around this issue. That sim- sensitivity implies you know, pleasant and unpleasant things. Otherwise it wouldn't be sensitivity. Like I want to be sensitive only to pleasant things. wouldn't work. Can you imagine developing compassion without uh, sensitivity to suffering? And, and fear is a form of suffering. Compassion couldn't, couldn't develop. It would be fake compassion, which is frequent. Talking about this, um, the Buddha talked about noble truths. Now, the first noble truth is dukkha, is, is discomfort, suffering, or whatever. Why is it noble? Because through the recognition and understanding of suffering, we walk towards liberation. So there is a sacredness to suffering, and therefore there is a sacredness to fear. I remember Pachul Rinpoche, he says something like, when you are meditating and all sorts of uh, negative feelings are crossing your mind, your mind is a, a sacred space. 
It is not that dukkha in itself is ennobling, otherwise the world would be a different place. It's that uh, the four noble truths together um, change, uh, have a transforming power. But the first one is recognizing suffering as suffering, recognizing fear as fear, getting comfortable with the fact that we have a sensitivity and we suffer and we are afraid because of that sensitivity. But that same sensitivity is what uh, makes us, um, what creates an aspiration to true happiness, that same sensitivity. So precious, precious sensitivity. Once we learn how to deal with it in the Samma, in the right way, then this sensitivity is going to generate only goodness. But if we, know, if we don't know how to deal with it, it's trouble. Um, Dukkha is a it's a very, um, it's a very large, it's a very uh, big word, but certainly it has very much to do with this, um, with this overwhelming tendency to become frustrated and dissatisfied that we have. It takes nothing for us to get dissatisfied and frustrated. It takes nothing. There is this great facility, this incredible inclination. In a split second, we are dissatisfied. This is dukkha. This, this, uh, you know, this passionate inclination. And that, that generates fear. So we are asked to recognize dukkha and work with dukkha, but there is a screen between us and dukkha, which is fear, because we are afraid of dukkha. We are afraid of discomfort. We are afraid of getting dissatisfied. We are afraid of frustration. So we might say that there are two reasons for us to work on fear. The first one is that fear itself is suffering. And the second one is that fear is a screen for us to access all the other forms of suffering because we are afraid of discomfort. So if we don't deal with the fear of discomfort, forget about working with discomfort. It's interesting that we are afraid of the effect. We are not afraid of the cause. We are afraid of discomfort, but we are not afraid of attachment. 
Don't you think? You know, attachment is also all pervasive. We, we, we want things to go in a certain way. We want people to be in a certain way. We want us to be in a certain way. And so we, we get constantly frustrated because things go their way. People are their way, uh, not our way. So we get frustrated. But the frustration was of attachment. But we are afraid of frustration. Couldn't care less about attachment. But that's the cause. Oh, yeah. Um, so, one, one, one uh, fruit of the work, we might say, is developing a healthy fear of attachment. Like, you know, if we are afraid uh, of some impending danger, if we are afraid that you know, a car is coming full speed and the child is crossing the road. Krishnamurti would say that is intelligence, that is not fear. Uh, so, uh, an intelligent fear of attachment instead of a compulsive fear of frustration would be a nice replacement. Discernment has to do with, with seeing, with putting our finger on these contradictions in, in, in which we live, in which we wallow. And then we feel confused, obviously. But practice is a big help in getting some more clarity. And we, 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 we're looking at the wrong enemy intensely. You're looking at the other side. Attachment is here. The danger is here. We look there. I feel confused, obviously. As we said, trust, um, the growth, the growth of trust, like something, you know, growth uh, um, elicits uh, the idea of something organic, so the organic uh, growth of trust comes through working uh, with the, 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 with the Four Noble Truths, so we, with working with discomfort. But when we see that our practice develops, first and foremost, through working with discomfort, working with dukkha, we, when we start putting our finger in this, this is a very good cure for fear, for fear of fear, for fear. So how, in other words, we see that from discomfort, um, more for, from working with discomfort, more freedom, more spaciousness come. 
So we get, obviously, less fearful of discomfort. Slowly. Maybe our first reaction is the old one. Because it's, you know, clicked so many times that it's the same old reaction, fear. But then, if something has got into our system, what follows start being different. It's different quality, softer, more accepting, more at ease. More at ease with suffering, more at ease with fear. But it's, it's, a, different, it's a different scenario, it's a different scene, different feel, feeling and field. Then, I think we should say a few words about our fear of impermanence. If we um, look a little bit at impermanence and, and, uh, and uh, you know, what is impermanence, and uh, we reflect on it, um, we come to understand that um, being afraid of impermanence um, means basically being afraid of death and life. We think that obviously I'm, I'm afraid of impermanence, I'm afraid to die. Well, it's normal, natural. We're afraid of <laughs> living and dying. Impermanence is the changing nature of things. Impermanence is life. Impermanence is time. We think only of ending of things as impermanence. Maybe it's because of some cultural conditioning. Um, but impermanence is the changing nature of things. Uh, you, you, you know, if, if um, say... If the winter doesn't end, then you can't have spring. That's impermanence. If, um, in order for a birth to have place, the conditions which were prior to birth should end. We are taught that the uh, goal of the practice is the amata dhamma, is the... uh, the thing which uh, doesn't die beyond beyond time, beyond life and death, and yet practice wants time, wants change. Practice wants impermanence. Cannot have any practice without impermanence. So, we don't think like this. Impermanence is bad. We resist impermanence. We want things to be the way they have always been. Why are you doing this? Because I've always done it. Uh, Why um, don't you want to move? Because I've been here for many years. But that's a better home, doesn't matter. 
fear of change, paralyzed, not very malleable, not very light, not very um, tractable, remember, the mind, which becomes tractable, pliable, malleable. Um, Fear um, stiffens. There is a, say, how do we resist change? I, I remember uh, a few years ago, I lost a very dear friend of mine. Very, was like a brother. And uh, we had been friends, we had been friends for some 40 years. Um, so I, um, whenever... Um, his memory would uh, come back, I would feel regret. Whenever I would pass by his home, I would feel regret. He's not here anymore. Regret. Whenever I, go, I would go into a personal retreat, after a few days, strongly, uh, his image would come back, and I would feel regret. At one point, I realized that this, uh, you know, wallowing in regret was preventing me to see how much gratitude I had for this friend, how much I had received from him. So what I did was that now, every time his image was coming back, I would open up to gratitude. Because gratitude was there, but it was under a layer of regret, which prevented gratitude from naturally coming out. And from that moment on, it was not a practice, it was just that gratitude would come out. And I felt it so much more natural. And it was so much more like him. You know, a friendship. Okay, uh, I would much rather have him around, of course, but he's not around anymore. But gratitude is there. Lots of gratitude. And from, from this uh, um, very good experience that I had, I think um, I, I, um, I thought of a practice that... <laughs> Every time we, we, we have some, any kind of regret, we can turn it into gratitude, and it works. You know, regret is, on the one hand, is natural, but on the other hand, it can be one-sided, negative, bitter. And as I said, we have a great facility, great um, inclination to bitterness, to you know, being negative, and we find all sorts of justification. Of course I'm bitter. He died. Why, of course? There is a, there is a story which I like very much in... Uh, the Jatakas, as a section of the Buddhist literature, 
Um, don't remember the exact reference, but it's in the Jataka. And this story is about uh, a great family, um, three generations living in the same home, and um, very pious, very devout Buddhist family in the old times. And they, um, they were very um, familiar with impermanence, with working with impermanence, with reflecting on impermanence. So they, someone in the family says, uh, well, we, well, someone asks, you are so happy, you know, these three generations together. How come you're so happy? And uh, the answer is because of impermanence. Oh, wait a moment. Why? What, what do you mean? Yes, since we know that life is so short, we, as much as we can, exchange good things and lots of loving kindness among ourselves because time is short. So we fill it up with good things. Extraordinary logical, but our conditioned mind, sometimes it's not so logical. Uh, so very, very full life, a very uh, full-hearted uh, life. And at one point, one person in the house, one man dies. And someone asked his very old father, how do you feel now that he's not around anymore? And he says, well, I've lived for a number of years. Uh, at first, I didn't have uh, I didn't have a, a son. Sorry, he's a he's a man. Uh, um, I I didn't have a, and I wasn't I wasn't unhappy. And then a time came when I had a son, and I had him for many years, and I was happy. And now I am without my son, but I am not unhappy. This is a teaching about what happens when a life is lived very fully and full with a full heart. There is loss. Uh, he doesn't say that he wasn't affected by this loss, but the fullness of life uh, reverberates in uh, uh, the situation after, after the death of the person. So this is a, a, a different way of, of, of uh, describing and uh, thinking about impermanence. And it's more real. And, uh, you know, you know is, is, uh, um, the consequences of experiencing it are not negative at all. To the contrary, they are liber- liberating. I think, I suspect that um, as long as we are grasping this solidity that we think we are, it's more difficult not to resist the impermanence flow. And so as long as as we are grasping uh, this I-mind, 
it's more difficult to get in, in touch with something of real value. But to the extent this, that we start let go, we start to let go of this fixation with I mine or with uh, self-interest, as Krishnamurti says, then we start having um, like um, hope. Not hope in the sense of expectation, but some a kind of a mysterious hope, um, a mysterious um, inkling of well-being despite it all. I forgot the rest of the talk. <laughs> it, it is impermanent. <laughs> Let's sit for a while together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.